0: Hello oh, and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast, where each week we talk with the writers and editors of the Peninsula Pulse about the stories you can find in this week's issue. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. How's it going, Miles?
1: It's going good. I'm still a little disappointed in the Game of Thrones finale, but I'm otherwise, all right. We're we're working through it. Were you actually disappointed, or yes, you're very disappointed for real? What? Okay,
0: this is a brief like minute of spoilers. If you don't want to, you know, skip ahead a minute.
1: What part were you disappointed in? I just thought there was so much build up for kind of a cop out finish. I I just, you know, just like uh everyone being kind of okay at the end after all that build up, all the stuff with the White Walkers. I was just like, wow, that was all for I don't know, You I wanted to didn't... see all
0: your favorite characters die.
1: And th- not so much that they all had to die, but it was just like kind of too easy after everything for for the first 5 seasons was so hard. Yeah. And then to have it just kind of kind of coast into the finish line didn't didn't sit real well with me i feel that i i've heard a
0: lot of of game of thrones didn't live up to expectations but i guess my response is me and my wife binged it over the course of a couple of months in the winter because we hadn't watched it before so you've got you know 10 years of anticipation building yeah. up in you to get this this finale and we've only been watching a little bit so maybe maybe it's just a difference in how we consume the show that that will temper our, our predictions or our expectations
1: yeah, I'd imagine having, like, the, the several years of thinking into it. And I'm a guy who listens to, like, podcasts about the show. I kind of nerd out on it. Right. And I just, I thought the writing was a little clumsy. Because you can you can go through this season and say, like, here's some obvious ways to fix, like, either huge plot holes or just continuity errors that were made. That you're just like, wow, that's really easy to do differently. Like, what? why wasn't there a writer in that room of, like, 40 writers who's just like, hey... There's a huge gap there. We can just do this. Like, let's save $1 million on CGI and just make sure we shoot this one scene. Well, you know what?
0: You waited 10 years for the finale of Game of Thrones. You can wait another 20 for George R.R. R. Martin to finish his two final books. Yeah. Moving <laughs> right along. Yeah, let's jump into the news this week. Uh, let's start in Ephraim and work our way up. So Ephraim's highway construction project. They're going to open the roads up this weekend.
1: Yeah, it's finally completed. I, I shouldn't say it's not done, done. They're still going to be doing some resurfacing work in the last few days of May and in through June but the big reconstruction with the new sidewalks and curb and gutter and the buried power lines that whole section is completed they're laying down asphalt now it's guaranteed to be open by the 24th at noon and it may be open a little sooner but yeah it's uh it looks really cool in Ephraim it's uh somebody who's Used to de- deliver pizzas through there, and you just see all these kids like kind of spilling out into the road because there's no sidewalks. And I-, I always had my fingers crossed I'm like, like, how has no one ever, nothing ever happened here with mm-hmm. pedestrians stumbling into the road? So, well, and, and we
0: we did an article about Ephraim's roads a couple years ago about how, especially in the summer, especially during like fear ball and stuff, you've got people parked along the roads the entire stretch of Ephraim, and it's dark and there's almost no room. For pedestrians to be walking especially if there's cars are trying to get into their cars it, it's just it's surprising that more accidents haven't happened in that stretch
1: especially at night because like you said they they don't have a lot of street lights there mm-hmm. and, and it's all winding roads and yeah. turns and with no sidewalks, people are basically just walking on the road so in this, a lot of cases. So
0: this wasn't just a, an infrastructure construction project. If you drive through Ephraim now, you're going to see an improvement, right?
1: Oh, yeah. You're going to see, I mean, obviously the new roads, the new sidewalk. And for a, a significant stretch, you're going to see. So like the main stretch of Ephraim, there were never like the, the kind of the waterfront stretch that everyone thinks of when they when they think of Ephraim across from Wilson's. There were never power lines on the um, waterfront side of the road there. But now they've buried another chunk of the power lines for about another mile, maybe more than that, in, in town. So just fewer power lines to obstruct the view, you know, opposite track of what town of Gibraltar did. Gibraltar chose not to bury their power lines. And now they just put in much larger, much more noticeable, tall, black telephone poles that I know for a fact that a lot of business owners are already saying, oh, we should have just buried the power lines. So, granted, it's an, a pricey proposition, but now Ephraim has done it. Sister Bay did it. Town of Bailey's Harbor is talking about it. Village of Bay Harbor is talking about it. It makes a big difference aesthetically. I'm guessing Town of Gibraltar is going to regret that.
0: Where does the sidewalk start? I mean, can you walk from, say, the, the soup bar and the coffee shop all the way up to Wilson's?
1: No, the sidewalk has, isn't going completely through to Wilson's. Um, I, I have to check where they cut that off. They have a sidewalk on the water side. It's not like a curb and gutter sidewalk. It kind of winds through the grassy area, like across from Wilson's. But there's no sidewalk on the Wilson's side. Um, right now, I know it goes past Moravia Street so, and then down to the beach. And it's only on the one side of the road. Uh, anything else about Ephraim before we move up north to Sister Bay? Uh, no, just that they will have, so it'll be completely open for Memorial Day. Um, and then after Memorial Day, there will be flagging operations during the weekdays and then it'll just be open on the weekends. So there's no more blockage, there's no more hard closure in Ephraim, you can go through all you want. So you just might have like some temporary flagging operations. By
0: Memorial Day, do you mean just Monday proper, or will it be totally oh, no, open the Memorial whole weekend? Day weekend yeah. Okay, awesome. So I I actually like this geographical approach to doing the news where we just move up and down the peninsula (laughs) to figure out what we're going to talk about. So Sister Bay uh, has some interesting new things. Um, Some new businesses have moved in and some changes to some old businesses have happened. So what are the new businesses that opened up?
1: Well, you know, Goose and Twigs uh, Cafe and um, Hotel opened April 1st, um, but that for, for folks who are just coming up for Memorial Day weekend, this will be their first time seeing that. If you want to a- learn more about Goose and Twigs, by the way, we actually talked to Gustavo and his chef
0: um, for an episode of One on One a couple weeks ago, so you should be able to just scroll back in your feed a couple weeks and you'll find that. Uh, really cool in- interview if you want to learn more about kind of this new up-and-coming hotel and, and dining option, you should definitely check that out.
1: Yeah, it's a cool place, and then you, and that's right across from Chop on Mill Road, just off the, the main drag there. Right next door to them, there's a new kind of four-unit vacation rental place, Mill Road Place, but uh, so you'll notice that basically it looks like a house or a small condo development. Up the road, there's the Marina View condominiums that will open probably late June. Uh, the developer says uh, definitely by the end of June. Um, that's 12 units also doing some vacation rentals and condos. So let's let's talk about them a little bit, because
0: I noticed them last summer um, around the time that like the door hotel uh, was being talked about a lot. And I remember driving through and seeing the sign for the door hotel. And we've talked about our opinions on the door hotel and kind of why it might make sense and that kind of stuff before on the podcast. But I remember driving through and then seeing this huge construction project that was just kind of north of. It's north of Al Johnson's, right? Yeah,
1: it's just north of the boathouse.
0: Right. So just kinda in that area, and I was like, oh, I wonder what this is. We haven't really talked about that. So do you know any of the background behind it?
1: Yeah, I mean it there was a residence there before and it was bought and torn down last year. And so anybody who hasn't been here all winter, it's gonna it's gonna stick out. When you come down the hill in Sister Bay. Because it's right on the bend, it kind of, you can see it from the top of the hill because it's actually built around that curve. So it's kind of staring at you. It's three stories tall, looks even taller just because of the way they construct the roof line there. So there, you know, a lot of people feel like it's it's too big and it kind of flew under the radar. Like you said, like everyone was talking about the hotel door. Nobody really even raised an eyebrow at this thing. But it's kind of funny because it's right across the street from where maybe 12, 13 years ago. Gage Meyer had proposed the Marina Landing condominium complex. That was a huge controversy uh, at the time. And ultimately, after several attempts to move that forward, the plan commission was not able to approve that. Or I think like basically the recession hit and he had run into so many roadblocks that he peeled back on that plan and, and never got built. But that was a much less stark building. It was kind of tiered so it would. Have some shops on the on the sidewalk, but then kind of taper back so it wasn't just one tall wall so it's kind of interesting that that was such a controversy back then. It was one of the bigger stories I had covered the first few years at the pulse, and then now this other one that's kind of right up by the highway kind of flew under the radar, and I, I think the hotel door took a lot of the oxygen out of the room. so what else is new in sister bay so then the other thing that uh, I wrote a little more extensively this issue is on deck sportswear has owner Mitch Larson has refaced the building of On Deck as you're coming down the hill in Sister Bay. So it's pretty noticeable. What he's done is something that he actually planned to do when he first bought the building 11 or 12 years ago, was he always had this vision of kind of breaking the roof line up and making it look like instead of one big warehouse type building, which, you know, kind of took the shape of in the 40s when it was built as Bunda's, actually Mitch's grandfather's department store that was there and so he was he always wanted to break that up and put like a historical facade to make it match a little bit of the look of what you might have seen at the turn of the century with kind of like modern colors so now it's like it's a broken up roof line kind of different awnings different like four kind of looks like four storefronts Um, but it
0: is still just on deck inside yeah it's
1: all still on deck i mean he he kind of has different brands within on deck so there's like bill's dry goods and on-deck sportswear, on-deck for men, on-deck for women, that kind of thing. And they are kind of separated in terms of like where those stores are, but it is like one big on-deck kind of (laughs) superstore. But yeah, it's kind of cool. And he he put up some old like orange crush signs from back in the 50s that are actually the original signs. They're not just like repainted signs. They're like signs from his grandfather's place. So the village approved him putting up those, they called like they fit them in their vintage sign ordinance. But yeah, so the on deck will have a, a different face as well. So even as much as Sister Bay has had a lot of new stuff the last few years, and you know even this summer, people coming back are going to see uh, a handful of of new places again. Well, and it it's interesting because we're we're going to talk about another uh, sort of facelift
0: or back to basics look uh, that another place in Sister Bay has done this, uh, this summer. But it, it's cool that they on deck was able to refresh their location by digging back into their roots you know what I mean instead of like trying to update the decor or update the facade they they went back to something that is you know maybe historically important or or might just add a little bit more to the fabric of the area that it's in which is cool uh if you want to see pictures of on deck they're up on the pulse website dorkcountypulse.com correct um I haven't actually seen it yet but I'm hoping to get to sister bay this weekend so I'll be able to actually see it and see the signs and all that kind of stuff But the other business in Sister Bay that kind of uh, refaced its exterior by going back to its foundation was Al Johnson's, right?
1: Yeah. It was uh, really cool. About two months ago, you started to see that kind of brown facade of Al start to chip away. And I didn't know if they just had put in new logs to repair it or what was going on there. So I stopped by the other day. And now that they've almost got the entire front cleaned off, and it kind of has that golden hue that the Staboor bar has next door. And I caught up with uh, Jim Minot and his grandson Levi, who have been up there on ladders using sandblasters, cleaning off all the old stain, like forty-five years worth of, of stain and linseed oil and pine tar on the outside of that building. And as they did it, it revealed like the the kind of detail in the wood that's really beautiful. And it's like I said, it's more of that natural golden hue to the wood. But also, there's these beautiful carvings that were that Ralph Johnson told me were um carved actually when that building was when they were building it in Norway before they shipped it over here in pieces the the carvings were actually done most of them back in Norway and in the hundreds if not thousands of times I've walked by Al Johnson's I never once noticed the detail and carvings in that wood Right. Until they took the sandblaster to it and revealed it all, and it's it's really cool. You can't miss me now. You can't miss them. Right. Well, and and something that I think is really neat too is uh, Stabor right next door um, has that like
0: beautiful golden wood. It really stands out for its vibrancy, and that's it's the same type of wood that was used to build Al Johnson's, uh, except when they when they first started using like you said linseed oil and and the the stain and stuff it pretty dramatically darkened the wood like right off the bat. And then that buildup, like you said, just obscured all of those really great, intricate carvings. So now they're going back to that, and they're using a new, almost transparent varnish yeah, to kind of stain everything. Do. And now the two buildings are going to look cohesive. Yeah. So Al Johnson's and Stabor will look like one whole facility
1: together, which I think is really neat. And it won't match entirely true. I mean, even if you look at Stabor, they have the, may, the, the original Stabor, that they moved over for that to create that bar. And then the new logs that they kind of built around it, you can tell a slight difference in the the shading. Older wood's just going to show different, and so that'll be the case with this. But I actually learned from Rolf that if you go to Al's last year, they put a retractable roof in there so they wouldn't get rained out so many days of the summer. And the posts that hold up that roof, if you look closely, there's a lot of carvings in that. They actually found a guy in a Norwegian guy who lives in South Dakota Who's a Norwegian carver who carved the, d- did all the carvings for the posts on the um, retractable roof over at Stabor. So they've really t- gone to great lengths to, to remain true to what Al Johnson's has been now for over 50 years. And now this summer they'll celebrate their 70th anniversary at a restaurant, but they've got the log home kind of look in 1973. You know, it's it was to give some perspective on this project. So now Jim, Jim Minow and his grandson, they've got it almost all of the old pine tar and stuff removed. And all that comes from um, like in the Ralph told me that in like 73, 74, 75, those first couple of years that they had the place that Al Johnson would pay local kids five bucks an hour, which is a good chunk of money for a little teenager in 73, 74 um, to go and stay in the building. And then one year, after putting some pine tar in that, or not pine tar, linseed oil, which darkened it, then they tried a new stain, and that made it way darker. And you might say, like, well, why didn't they just change it back then? Well, this project, to get all that old stain off, they've sandblasted the entire building plus the outbuildings, and that has taken them since April 9th to today. They finally finished it this week. Now they go got to go with, like, a tiny sander and sand the entire building down. All those logs got to get sanded, and then they're going to come back and put the new stain on. So they still got a good month of work left there. So they're looking at probably four to five hundred man hours on that building before it's all done, just to redo the the face of that building. It's insane.
0: Well, and uh, it, it's another cool example of that. Like they they decided to update the facade of the building, but they did it by going back to the the origin or the yeah. history of the building. I think that that's a really neat way to preserve that legacy and to, to weave that back in because so much of Sister Bay is new in the last 10 years. So much right. of it is very contemporary. So to continue to push just a little bit more of that history into the fabric while still keeping things, you know, modern and updated internally, it, it, it's a really
1: great way to kind of like build a more cohesive village feel. Yeah. It's it's a really it's really cool when you see businesses like Mitch probably doesn't need to invest in on deck. Like this very successful business mitch is a businessman that i respect as, as much as any up here al johnson's they didn't need to do that obviously you can't really get more successful than al's has been over the years right well and people but, aren't even looking at the wood they're looking up at the goats yeah, right so, like <laughs> you very clearly have a
0: distinction there of like we don't really need to do this but yeah it is a cool project to take on
1: and it's cool when people do it for primarily the purpose of just making their building look good and i think it'll eventually pay off in better business and like mitch said you know i think you know the curb appeal this he he felt like his business in sister bay never had that great curb appeal but his sturgeon bay and fish creek ones do and he he said i do believe that that will pay dividends eventually maybe it doesn't pay for everything i've just done but like he feels like mitch is a a sister bay native grew up in the town um has his family ties that go back to the 1880s in the town so he feels pride in it and he's like he said he goes you know when i'm when i'm gone i wanted to I want people to say that I invested and, and left something cool behind right well
0: and the aesthetic of your building is is important I mean you can you can name uh, off the top of your head a bunch of buildings that have become almost Door County icons uh, like Wilson's I mean you think when you think Ephraim, from you think of that there's a reason why it's probably the most painted structure in all of door County right. outside of maybe some of the lighthouses
1: yeah maybe I mean it might be number one that'd be pretty interesting actually right I don't know how you'd ever quantify it <laughs> we we got to go find them all yeah Buy them all, Andrew. They're all yours. All right, I'm going to open up the first ever Wilson's Museum, <laughs>
0: and you can come in and check it out all, but I won't let you take pictures of them. <laughs> all right, why don't we take a break, Miles, and when we get back, we have a little bit more news. We're going to talk about housing a little bit, uh, and then you wrote an article for Memorial Day that's kind of personal to you and I think was very lovely, and uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about
1: it. Yeah, sure.
0: They called themselves the Stradivarius Builders of Sturgeon Bay, because the guys at Palmer Johnson were artists in wood, and metalwork. anything you imagine. They did it so beautifully well. The first
1: fishermen came down the lake from Mackinac Island, uh, worked their way along the north shore of Lake Michigan, and they came because of the whitefish. The whitefish were abundant. In 1945, 2,000 German prisoners of war came to Door County and picked cherries for just one harvest season.
0: Peninsula Filmworks is dedicated to telling the stories of Door County past, present, and future. To learn more about the history of shipbuilding in Sturgeon Bay, to see how the cherry became a Door County icon, or to watch the Peninsula's last remaining fishermen brave the waters to haul in thousands of pounds of whitefish daily, and the many other incredible stories produced with the Door County Visitor Bureau, visit doorcounty.com slash our Door County. Okay, we are back. So, Miles, uh, tell me a
1: little bit about what you heard at the meeting in Sister Bay this week about housing. Okay, so we had, stepping back, in April we put out the sustainability issue, which was all focused on housing issues, summer housing, senior housing, uh, year-round affordable homes for purchase and rent. Well, after that, um, I kind of got roped into the Attainable Housing Committee's Outreach Committee, which has been, and so we've been planning for a couple of months. On how to make sure we get the housing study that was done back in February? How do we make sure that that doesn't sit on a shelf and collect dust? How do we turn that into action? And Jim Schusler um, from DCDC has been one of the at the forefront of this. Mariah Good and Becky Kerwin at the uh, Door County Planning Department have just done a lot of the heavy lifting here on getting a lot of data collected and trying to churn it out and present it in a decipherable digestible way and they've done an amazing job with that. And what we're trying to do is go and we're doing three sessions. The first was this last Tuesday. The next two are next uh the 29th and 30th of May. We're doing one at the Sturgeon Bay High School auditorium and one at the Southern Door High School auditorium. And just trying to get as many community people who are interested in housing and even if you're not interested, there's a lot of people that just need to be there, you know, if you're on a town board or Um, if you're a developer, if you um, are an employer and you're struggling to find housing for your employees, you should be at these meetings because there's a lot of education out of it and we're trying to get your feedback and we're trying to get people to talk about what what are the projects they've tried to do and where they've run into roadblocks and find ways that we can take those roadblocks down and also ways that we might be able to work with developers who might be able to build some things or have some ideas for things that might be at a more affordable level. So in Sister Bay on Tuesday, about 125 people turned out, including the entire Sister Bay Village Board, which stopped their board meeting to come on over to the town hall and attend this presentation, which I thought was a really cool, bold step by Sister Bay, because the rest of the audience, there were only five other municipal board members in the audience. um, And only about a dozen or fewer people that are age 40 and under, because I had everyone raise their hand. And those are the people who need this housing. They need to show up at these meetings. We need to start creating A critical mass of people to start having their voices heard. Because last week I was at a town of Gibraltar meeting and they were talking about housing. And the only people there were the people who were voicing um, complaints about it and all the things that they thought housing would do poorly for the town and everything that bad that it would bring. And we need the other people that need the housing and the business owners who need the housing for their employees. They need to show up at those meetings.
0: Well, and it, the, the people that you're talking about, it's not just the people who are looking for housing up here. Housing is an important issue, I think, for people across the board, because if you, you know, if you already have a home up here uh, or you own a business up here, making sure that that new young families come into the county and stay in the county, reinvest their work energy and, you know, have children up here and all of that kind of stuff that guarantees a future for you. Right. So it, it's housing is not just a uh, an issue that young families or young people trying to work in the county need to do, you know, think about. It's an issue that everybody across the board needs to be. Even the most comfortable people up here should be concerned with the lack of affordable housing.
1: Unless you really plan on being a hermit and living off, off the grid or something. It is it, like if you want this community to survive, you got to be um, thinking about it. And from that meeting, you know, we heard some good questions. People were asking things like, well, why can't we put room tax dollars toward um, affordable housing? It's a good question and it's a good idea. The way the legislation is written about room taxes, you can't, it has to go toward the promotion of overnight stays, or at least 70% of it does, because it's a tax on lodging. So the money taken from that should be used to promote lodging, is the theory there. 30% of it goes back to the municipalities. They can spend that any way they choose. In Door County, most of the municipalities have said tourism is important. We're going to use it to either support tourism infrastructure, maybe concerts, maybe improving some certain venues or, or streetscape, or to help fund our local visitor center and staff our visitor center. So going after the room tax funds is probably not going to move anywhere. Um, maybe you could get a town to put a little bit behind it, but then people forget that like the way that people see in the business now, and they, they're like, oh, like, that just happened. No, room tax was started. And a ton of promotion went into it, and that's part of the reason we have the, the great tourism economy that we have. Now, you take the money out of that, and maybe you don't need the housing anymore because the tourism starts to suffer. So you don't want to—tourism create, helps create the housing problem, so that's kind of a—in a way, it's a good thing. So you don't want to, like, take away the tourism to try and solve the housing thing. So in any case—
0: Right. I mean, it's not necessarily about finding an equilibrium between the two. It's about addressing the deficit that we have with
1: yeah. one. And so there's other one of the things that's uh, starting to gain some traction, and I'm slightly involved with this as well, is the Door County Housing Trust, which would operate sort of like a land trust. But obviously the name Door County Land Trust is taken and does a great job conserving space and 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 land for environmental purposes. But a housing trust would kind of do the same thing is preserve this land, preserve these homes for generations of people to buy affordable housing. So it would you would say, like, purchase land and let's say we get a pool of money together and it's $500,000 and we buy $500,000 worth of land and maybe that's 20 acres or whatever that might be. And now you build homes on them and you have them restricted by covenants so that somebody can, you build an affordable home on them, somebody buys that home, they cannot then resell that home at like a market price and just flip it and make their money. They also can't rent it out seasonally. They also have to be year-round employed workers in Door County. So it's not going to become a seasonal home, not going to become a second home, and then when they need to move out, it's not going to just jack up the price. It's going to stay an affordable level, like with uh, adjustments for inflation and things like that. But it's not going to go be like, all right, you bought it for one twenty, now you're going to flip it for one seventy-five five years from now. It's you bought it for one twenty, all right, five years from now maybe it's one twenty-four. So it stays in that affordable pool as a stepping stone for the next generation of people looking for affordable housing. So that's like uh, something that it seems like uh, villages and towns are pretty interested in, potentially giving land to something like that. And we're hoping to gain some traction with that. And there's some discussion about maybe using that same model to create rental property, not just purchase property. Because in in my mind, I'd I'd say the lack of rentals is almost more important than the lack of homes for purchase, because that's how people get their foot in the door and um, find a decent lifestyle at the beginning anyway. So There's a couple of ideas, a lot more good ideas coming from those. And I think just like the more people we can get at those meetings, the more we can learn from each other and hopefully move this, get the ball rolling toward some tangible solutions.
0: Right. Well, and like I said earlier, this is an issue that should be concerning everybody. Everybody should be showing up at these meetings with input. A couple of great resources, I think, if you want to just get some context around the issue uh, we did an episode called Sustainability 2019, where, Miles, you do a really great job of kind of breaking down the sustainability issue, which was all focused on affordable housing this year. And you you kind of give us the, the background that we need to know about the study, about why housing is an issue in Door County, that kind of stuff. And then you pitch some of the potential solutions that were brought up in the issue. Uh, Another great resource is just to read all the articles out of that issue because it was was a really great effort from the whole Pulse team to come together and start throwing potential solutions at the wall to see if any of them may be stuck. And if you want some inspiration, check those out because, like you said, this is a problem that that could have a bunch of different solutions to it, but you, you need to be working through each of those in order to... To, to get to one that actually sticks.
1: And you know what? And the, the answers don't always come from the experts. You know, like Mariah would tell you, like she, she doesn't sit in the zoning room and just ask zoning administrators and they figure it out. You know, being at the meeting last week, we heard a great idea from a bar owner who had tried to do some affordable housing, like a, kind of a tiny home development with a shared common space that he said he, it's a really great idea, but he said he ran into roadblocks and couldn't, they, he was told he couldn't do it like 10 years ago. So we need to figure that out. We've answered some questions about what buildings need to be sprinklered and which don't, and trying to work our way through that, because um, that really affects the price of a of a multifamily development. Other other folks have come forward with just different different ideas that can be that can become zoning code changes and can become town ordinance changes, and that can go back to that we can get clarification from too. Like some people will say, well, I, oh, you can't do that because of X, and we go, well, actually, we talked to a building inspector, and you can do that. So. Those are all things that that we're trying to get in bulk right now. So.
0: Right. Well, and that I think that's the biggest thing to hit on is that uh, if you if you're stuck in the Facebook comic section and you are reading people saying like affordable housing is an issue, what if we tried this? You're going to get a lot of people saying like, no, you can't do that. But there are ways around things. There are ways that. The laws can be changed. The ordinances can yeah. be changed. There are ways that, you know, compromises can be made to make these kind of things happen. Having the context there to be able to, to bring forth ideas and to be able to uh, work things out from both sides, I think, is really important. And if you want to see movement in this issue, and I think that it's in everybody's best interest that there is positive movement on this issue these meetings are where it starts.
1: Right, exactly.
0: So, Miles, why don't we wrap up the news uh, and talk a little bit about your article that you wrote. So, it's so Memorial Day on Monday, and uh, you you wrote an article about your mom and about
1: her father, right? Yeah, so I've been thinking about this, you know, for a long time. My mother, she's 76 now. She was born in 1942. Uh, when she was born, her father, Lawrence Beckwith, was already off to war. It, they... believe in in doing the research on on the dates and stuff because we didn't we didn't always know a lot about my mom's side of the family a generation back um, because her father was killed in World War II Um, well he came home from the war with uh, he had battled malaria he had been shot in the helmet he came home a different man and was never really fully back in the home and spent a lot of his time at Vaughn Veterans Hospital outside of Chicago And my mom only saw him once or twice um, as a little girl uh, before he died in 1949 of his injuries. And so she never knew her father. And then a few short years later, her her mother died of breast cancer. And so she went from having a single mom, basically, for a few years, then with the hope of having her dad come home, then losing her dad, and then her mom dying. And so she was orphaned at 12 which is something I didn't really come to grips with until a few years ago. I I knew that her parents were dead, obviously, but I never really put it into terms in my head of like, oh, this this person was, my mom was orphaned. Like she lost that whole generation and then the generations behind it. Right, well, and at 12. At 12. And I mean, you start thinking like, wow, anything I think is hard. (laughs) And, you know, when you grow up, you have expectations for your parents and, when you're young, you don't know how to put that in context. As you become an adult, you start to realize the pressures that are on people and what people go through. And like, as I've started to hit my forties, I think back to my, my mom trying to raise us without like, I call my parents every single day. (laughs) Usually I'm asking something of them. It's, I'd like to say I'm just checking in all the time, but usually I've got some stupid question for my mom or my dad. And I'm like, they, my mom never had that resource. She didn't even have that resource in grade school, you know, of of how to navigate high school, how to, she grew up in the south side of Chicago in the back of the yards neighborhood. Kind of a rough, poorer neighborhood. And you just think of, she navigated her way through, went on to college at Loyola, was pursuing a nursing degree, which she ended up putting on pause at that time because she became pregnant with uh, my oldest sister. Later, years later, after she had six of us, she went back to college at NWTC and earned her nursing degree with six kids at home. I have no idea how she did that either. <laughs> it boggles my mind. I can barely take care of my dog. But what, why I wrote this for Memorial Day, as I got thinking about it, it wasn't just about necessarily my mom or my family's story. But, you know, it's kind of weird because I don't really think of my family as like a military family. But then I think, oh, my mom's dad died in, you know, the war to end all wars. And, you know, that's only one generation removed from that. And one generation removed from the impact of World War II. And, you know, we talk about war in terms of like financial costs, economic costs. What does it cost to move ships? How many ships are we going to have to use? How many aircrafts are we going to have to use? And then we talk about it maybe in terms of uh, the soldiers who are killed and maybe the ones who are injured. But we really don't talk about the ones that are injured so much. Like for everyone killed, there's so many that have, whether it be lost a limb, lost some use of, of their body, or just the, the trauma that they bring home. I mean, so many kill themselves every day. So many veterans every day kill themselves. Um, well, and sometimes it's not even the,
0: the physical or, or mental. Like, when I say physical, I mean, sometimes it's not even the, the loss of a limb. But think about, you know, chemical warfare and things mm-hmm. like that. Or people who get sick of, from diseases. or yes. You know, things that they pick up that you'd only pick up in a warfare situation like that. I mean, those things have effects, too.
1: And, and then even one step beyond them are the people like my mom who, no, they were never in the war. They weren't injured in the war, but they lose a father. They lose a mother. They lose, maybe that person comes back and they're not who they once were. And you've lost the person that they were. And millions more of those people, those, what I call the hidden casualties, are walking around with us every day. You know, I I think of like, what, what did my mom not get to learn about parenting by virtue of never having her own to lean on? And how many times, like, as I think of things we went through growing up, and I was like, well, wow, how would I figure that out? And I'm like, well, I'd call my mom or I'd call my dad. And I, I just think she, she didn't have that. And you, you think of that's, that's what happens when you go to war. So recently, you've heard some of this talk about people beating the drums to go to war in Iran. I don't know if you followed that at all. I, I've as much as I try to tune it out sometimes like it's but it's kind of how we ended up in Iraq is people tuned it out. And then we just let, let the drum beat go. And they're using the same justifications that they used when they talked about going to war in Iraq of Donald Rumsfeld famously said, oh, we're going to be greeted as liberators. We're going to be in and out of there in three months, maybe six. George Bush said that. Dick Cheney said that. It's going to be a cakewalk. Of course, it wasn't. And it's led us down to one war after another. And now we're talking about going to war in Iran. And guys like Tom Cotton are saying, it's going to be two strikes, the first strike and the last one. It's going to be a cakewalk. I'm like, how can you... It's almost like some of these people think war is just a fun game. And I just, I think that's, yes, there are times when we do have to fight. There are wars that I believe are justified, but there's never a justifiable time to talk about it so flippantly when we have so many people who lost so much. And I just think it's really insulting. And on Memorial Day, especially... I just wanted to write something that kind of got at that other side of, of war that, that's not like the ceremonies, that's not the, the trumpets in the, at the graveyard and putting flags out, but like the, the way that people have to live, the way the veterans, what they have to deal with every single day and what their families have to deal with every single day for the rest of their lives when we make these decisions. And that if we think more about that, I, I think that's, we'll honor them and, and pay more tribute to them than, than hanging decorations you know when you when you talked a little bit about people coming back a changed
0: person you know what i mean and the 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 mental toll that war takes on on everybody the the mental illnesses that that come from that post traumatic stress disorder all of that kind of stuff it made me think of a show that i did in college called carousel have you ever heard of it mm,
1: it's a i've and heard Ham- of it but i've never seen it
0: the rogers and hammerstein show and i had a lot of problems with it because it's about a Small fishing village, and it's about this guy named Billy who meets his sweetheart there. And they don't really have, like, a, like a great romance. Uh, it came out in 1945, by the way. And throughout the show, you start to get hints that he might be abusing her. And there's a couple moments in the show where he does strike her. Uh, he dies and then gets the chance to come back as a ghost and, like, try to make things right. <laughs> And in doing so, he almost ends up striking his child. So it's like he, he's this really, like, tortured guy. Yeah. And he lashes out physically at the women in his life. And I had a lot of problems with it because he's redeemed in the end. And it's a story about, like, oh, you can forgive that because he, for, for whatever reason, they, they celebrate him at the end and everything turns out good. <laughs> and his hand on the back of his daughter allows her to, like, go on and graduate school and stuff like that. But there's no real, like, revelation. Like, he never has to face the fact that he's abusing the women in his life. Hmm. And I struggled with it for a long time until I did a little bit more research on it. And the time frame that it came out in, I think, is the most important part because it came out in 1945. And this was a show that was deliberately putting that type of man up on a pedestal and saying, it's okay because we had a bunch of soldiers coming back from the war who were unable to deal with the mental trauma that they had, you know, incurred over there. And they would come back and they would lash out at the people close to them. There was a lot of domestic abuse right after World War II. Mm-hmm. And this was a way of saying like, it's okay. Not a, not a great way to, to do that. I mean, and by today's standards, that's not the way to handle it. But it's really interesting to say that, like, this was a way that they could go to a show, sit down, be entertained for a couple of hours, try to forget, and then see this thing that they've been struggling with and kind of get that reassurance that it's okay. Like, Mm. everything's going to be all right. Don't worry about it. Thank you. I know that this sucks for you guys, and I know that it sucks for you women, but this is what we have to deal with, and let's just maybe forgive these people for a little bit. (laughs) Again... A contemporary reading of it does not work anymore. But it's really interesting when you try to historiographically put it into context like
1: that. Well, it's that whole era, if you think, I mean, just the the magnitude of World War II, 440 million American soldiers killed, 75 to 80 million people worldwide killed. And my my wife's grandmother was one who was taken from her home at 13 to a, a Nazi or a German work camp for the Nazis. And never saw her family again. Six, I think 16 million uh, Polish people were killed. She never went back to Poland after the war. Uh, went back years and years later. But, like, fled, came to America and was like, there's nothing. I, I asked her about this. I'm like, why, why didn't you go back to your family? She's like, there was nothing there anymore for me. Their- Poland was devastated. And um, I'm sure there was some torture over having been pulled away for six years. But, yeah, you think of what people at that time dealt with on On a mass scale, you know, there's soldiers that come home now, but our society goes on. We go to war. nobody feels it here anymore and but at that time, it was like everyone was just traumatized, and I can't even imagine well, like what's that next day like?
0: right, And trying to deal with uh, with really serious mental health issues that they didn't even know were happening to them. Mm-hmm. they didn't They didn't have any words for them. they didn't know how to even deal with it. And the and majority, we certainly didn't
1: have the infrastructure or the resources to, <laughs> to tr- for treatment. <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
0: I mean, the majority of these people came home, changed, so to say, and had no idea how to cope with it or, or how to even quantify it in any meaningful way.
1: Well, even into the 70s, I once organized a reunion for the 1969 Gibraltar basketball team that was like the best that Gibraltar ever had. And when I was calling up those players, there had been a death in that class during that basketball season, there had been a car accident that claimed the lives of three of their classmates. And one of the guys, when I reached him, and I asked, because I didn't know about this accident until I asked him, like, hey, I'm trying to get a hold of this other guy. He said, oh, he was killed. I said, what? When? And then he told me about the accident. And as he was telling me, he goes, I've never talked about this before. We just didn't do that back then. They didn't have the therapy and, and the outreach that they do now. And I think about that with my mom. I only... You heard the stories of the kid a little bit. And then just, it's one of those things you're always afraid to really dig deep with your parents. And uh, probably only did that like five years ago when I sat down with my mom and was brave enough to... I kind of thought like I'd made these stories up in my head, honestly. Like I didn't know if those were real. And I would kind of like double check and I'm like, all right, mom, let. I remember this story about your father. And then she would start telling me and I was like, wow. And that's when I found out about how she last saw him and then how she last saw her mother. And I'm so glad I did because it gives me so much more perspective. It's, it it was a really weird, hard piece to write because it's, it's just difficult topic, but also it's just kind of weird journalistically to write about kind of yourself and your own family in that way. So, um, and trying to track down the details, but yeah, it was a little cathartic too. And it just made me have a great deal of admiration for, for my mother and the fact that they, she made a life and raised six kids and, and got through it all. And has as always been like somebody who just kind of like things hit her in life. And she just kind of like moves forward, moves forward, moves forward. It's just, like she said about the, the neighborhood, there were a lot of other kids whose parents, whose fathers weren't coming home either. And so she was like, we didn't know that there were neighborhoods that weren't dealing with that. You know, most of wars are the, the brunt of it falls on the poor neighborhoods. And so she was like, you just, everyone was struggling. So. Right. Crazy.
0: Well, thank you, Miles, for for writing and sharing that story with us. The timing for Memorial Day is great. And I think that it's a great way to kind of spend a little bit of your Memorial Day thinking about the other side of it. Like you said, I think that that's important to to honor those who have served, but to also, you know, contextualize everything and think about the whole story. If you don't spend the time, even though it's hard, like you said, it's hard. If you don't spend the time thinking about this type of stuff, you can pretty easily fall into that mentality that like, War is a game, or war is a a thing that that can be done easily in some way. You know, when you you mentioned earlier about the, you know, there will be two strikes, the first strike and the last strike. We'll get in, we'll get out. That's how you talk about, like, cleaning an apartment. Like, I'm going to get in, I'm going to get out. Twenty minutes. It's all I need like that's not how you should talk it's, about. Sounds like my pregame speech for a high school basketball game.
1: Right. Which was very important for two hours.
0: Yeah. <laughs> or like if you've got three kids in the car and you're about to go into Walmart, it's like I'm going to be in and out, going to beeline right for this aisle. I know exactly where to. Like that's how you talk about that type of stuff. You don't yeah. talk about war that way. Right. So, well, I think that that's just about going to do it for us this week, Miles. Thank you so much for chatting with me, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Thank you as always, Andrew.
0: These stories and more will be available in this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse, available throughout Door County. For more headlines, visit doorcountypulse.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast for your weekly Pulse picks, interviews, and exclusive content from the Peninsula Pulse. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.